Chapter Twelve of The Door Through Space. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. That's L-I-B-R-I-V-O-X dot O-R-G. Recording by Christy Nowak. The Door Through Space by Marion Zimmer Bradley. Chapter Twelve. An hour before dawn, there was a noise in my room. I roused, my hand on my skein. Someone, or something, was fumbling under the mattress where I had thrust Everin's bird. I struck out, encountered something warm and breathing, and grappled with it in the darkness. A foul-smelling something gripped over my mouth. I tore it away and struck hard with the skein. There was a high shrilling. The gripping filth loosened and fell away, and something died on the floor. I struck a light, retching in revulsion. It hadn't been human. There wouldn't have been that much blood from a human. Not that color, either. The chalk who ran the place came and gibbered at me. Chalks have a horror of blood, and this one gave me to understand that my lease was up then and there. No arguments. No refunds. He wouldn't even let me go into his stone outbuilding to wash the foul stuff from my shirt-cloak. I gave up and fished under the mattress for Everin's toy. The chalk got a glimpse of the embroideries on the silk in which it was wrapped, and stood back, his loose, furry lips hanging open, while I gathered my few belongings together and strode out of the room. He would not touch the coins I offered. I laid them on a chest, and he let them lie there. And as I went into the reddening morning, they came flying after me into the street. I pulled the silk from the toy, and tried to make some sense from my predicament. The little thing lay innocent and silent in my palm— it wouldn't tell me whether it had been keyed to me, the real Cargill, some time in the past, or to recall using my name and reputation in the Terran colony here at Charon. If I pressed the stud, it might play out this comedy of errors by hunting down recall, and all my troubles would be over. For a while, at least, until Everin found out what had happened. I didn't deceive myself that I could carry the impersonation through another meeting. On the other hand— if I pressed the stud, the bird might turn on me, and then all my troubles would be over for good. If I delayed past Everin's deadline and did nothing, the other bird in his keeping would hunt down Julie and give her a swift and not-too-painless death. I spent most of the day in a chalk dive, juggling plans, toys innocent and sinister, spies, messengers, toys which killed horribly, toys which could be controlled, perhaps, by the pliant mind of a child— and every child hates its parents now and again. Even in the Terran colony, who was safe? In Mac's very home, one of the Magnuson youngsters had a shiny thing which might or might not be one of Everin's hellish toys. Or was I beginning to think like a superstitious dry-towner? Damn it, Everin couldn't be infallible. He hadn't even recognized me as Race Cargill. Or— Suddenly the sweat broke out again on my forehead. Or had he— had the whole thing been one of those sinister, deadly, and incomprehensible non-human jokes? I kept coming to the same conclusion. Julie was in danger, but she was half a world away. Recall was here in Charon. There was a child involved, Julie's child. The first step was to get inside the Terran colony and see how the land lay. Charon is a city shaped like a crescent moon encircling the small trade city— a miniature spaceport, a miniature skyscraper HQ, and clustered dwellings of the Terrans who worked there, and those who lived with them and supplied them with necessities, services, and luxuries. Entry from one to the other is through a guarded gateway, since this is hostile territory, and Charon lies far beyond the impress of ordinary Terran law. But the gate stood open wide, and the guards looked lax and bored, 
They had shockers, but they didn't look as if they'd used them lately. One raised an eyebrow at his companion as I shambled up. I could pretty well guess the impression I made, dirty, unkempt, and stained with non-human blood. I asked permission to go into the Terran zone. They asked me my name and business, and I toyed with the notion of giving them the name of the man I was inadvertently impersonating. Then I decided that if Rakal had passed himself off as Race Cargill, he'd expect exactly that, and he was also capable of the masterstroke of impudence, putting out a pickup order through Space Force for his own name. So I gave them the name we'd used from Shane Saw to Charon, and tacked one of the Secret Service passwords on the end of it. They each looked at each other again, and one said, Raskara, this is the guy, all right. He took me into the little booth by the gate while the other used an intercom device. Presently they took me along to the HQ building and into an office that said Leggett. I tried not to panic, but it wasn't easy. Evidently I'd walked square into another trap. One guard asked me, All right, now what exactly is your business in the trade city? I'd hoped to locate Recall first. Now I knew I'd have no chance, and at all costs I must straighten out this matter of identity before it went any further. "'Put me straight through to Magnuson's office, level 38, at Central HQ, by Vizzy,' I demanded. I was trying to remember if Mac had ever even heard the name we used in Shainsa. I decided I couldn't risk it. "'Name of Race Cargill.' The guard grinned without moving, he said to his partner. "'That's the one, all right.' He put his hand on my shoulder, spinning me around. "'Haul off, man. Shake your boots.' There were two of them, and Space Force guards aren't picked for their good looks. Just the same, I gave a pretty good account of myself until the inner door opened and a man came storming out. "'What the devil is all this racket?' One guard got a hammerlock on me. "'This dry-towner bum tried to talk us into making a priority call to Magnuson, the chief at Central. He knew a couple of the SS passwords. That's what's got him through the gate. Remember, Cargill passed the word that somebody would turn up trying to impersonate him.' "'I remember.' The strange man's eyes were wary and cold." "'You damned fools!' I snarled. "'Magnuson will identify me. Can't you realize you're dealing with an impostor?' One of the guards said to the legate in an undertone, "'Maybe we ought to hold him as a suspicious character.' But the legate shook his head. "'Not worth the trouble. Cargill said it was a private affair. "'You might search him. Make sure he's not concealing contraband weapons,' he added, and talked softly to the wide-eyed clerk in the background while the guards went through my shirt-cloak and pockets." When they started to unwrap the silk-shrouded toy, I yelled. If the thing got set off accidentally, there'd be trouble. The legate turned and rebuked. Can't you see it's embroidered with the toad god? It's a religious amulet of some sort. Let it alone. They grumbled, but gave it back to me, and the legate commanded. Don't mess him up any more. Give him back his knife and take him to the gates, but make sure he doesn't come back. I found myself seized and frog-marched to the gate. One guard pushed my skein back into its clasp. The other shoved me hard, and I stumbled, fell sprawling in the dust of the cobbled street, to the accompaniment of a profane statement about what I could expect if I came back. A chorus of jeers from a cluster of chalk children and veiled women broke across me. I picked myself up, glowered so fiercely at the giggling spectators that the laughter drained away into silence and clenched my fists, half inclined to turn back and bull my way through. Then I subsided. First round to recall. He had sprung the trap on me very neatly. The street was narrow and crooked, winding between doubled rows of pebble-houses and full of dark shadows even in the crimson noon. I walked aimlessly, favoring the arm the guard had crushed. I was no closer to settling things with recall, and I had slammed at least one gate behind me. Why hadn't I had sense enough to walk up and demand to see Race Cargill? Why hadn't I insisted on a fingerprint check? I could prove my identity and recall, using my name in my absence to those who didn't know me by sight, couldn't. I could at least have made him try. 
but he had maneuvered it very cleverly, so I never had a chance to insist on proofs. I turned into a wine shop and ordered a dram of greenish mountainberry liquor, sipping it slowly and fingering the few bills and coins in my pockets. I'd better forget about warning Julie. I couldn't vise her from Charon, except in the Terran zone. I had neither the money nor the time to make the trip in person, even if I could get passage on a Terran-dominated airline after today. Maylin. She had flirted with me, and like Dalisa, she might prove vulnerable. It might be another trap, but I'd take the chance. At least I could get hints about Everin, and I needed information. I wasn't used to this kind of intrigue any more. The smell of danger was foreign to me now, and I found it unpleasant. The small lump of the bird in my pocket tantalized me. I took it out again. It was a temptation to press the stud and let it settle things, or at least start them going, then and there. After a while I noticed the proprietors of the shop staring at the silk of the wrappings. They backed off, apprehensive. I held out a coin, and they shook their heads. "'You are welcome to the drink,' one of them said. "'All we have is at your service. Only please go. Go quickly.' They would not touch the coins I offered. I thrust the bird in my pocket, swore, and went. It was my second experience with being somehow taboo, and I didn't like it. It was dusk when I realized I was being followed. At first it was a glimpse out of the corner of my eye, a head seen too frequently for coincidence. It developed into a too persistent footstep in uneven rhythm. Tap, tap, tap. Tap, tap, tap. I had my skein handy, but I had a hunch this wasn't anything I could settle with a skein. I ducked into a side street and waited. Nothing. I went on, laughing at my imagined fears. And then... After a time, the soft, persistent footfall thudded behind me again. I cut across a thieves' market, dodging from stall to stall, cursed by old women selling hot fried goldfish, women in striped veils railing at me in their chiming talk when I brushed their rolled rugs with hasty feet. Far behind I heard the familiar, uneven hurry. Tap, 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 tap. I fled down a street where women sat on flower-decked balconies, their open lanterns flowing with fountains and rivulets of gold and orange fire. I raced through quiet streets where furred children crept to doors and watched me pass with great golden eyes that shone in the dark. I dodged into an alley and lay there, breathing hard. Someone, not two inches away, said, "'Are you one of us, brother?' I muttered something surly in his dialect, and a hand reassuringly human closed on my elbow. "'This way.' Out of breath with long running, I let him lead me, meaning to break away after a few steps, apologize for mistaken identity, and vanish, when a sound at the end of the street made me jerk stiff and listen. Tap, 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 tap. I let my arm relax in the hand that guided me, flung a fold of my shirt-cloak over my face, and went along with my unknown guide. End of chapter 12